Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 422. This program is uh, in merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menuchalena and Miriam Baschayas Altes, Yikusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basliba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todes ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altes. There's a, an expression from the Rabbeim. Friedrich Rebbe brings it in the name of his father, who heard it from his father. So it goes back generations that Pashas Noyach, is when a Kalamut Nevoch, was a more melancholy week, a more depressing week, a more subdued week. But when it comes to Sof Parsha, when you come to the end of Parsha Noyach, Dan Velt Vert Merlebedik. At the end of the chapter, you get more uplifted because it's the birth of Avram Avinu. And then when we come to Parsha Lech Lecha, which is the full Parsha, is all about the story of Avram Avinu, then it's a real Simcha Dika week. It's a joyous week. The obvious reason is because in Noyach we hear about the destruction of the world. Mala Arashachas, the whole world was filled with crime and corruption. And God brought the marble, the flood. Yes, Noyach and his family preserved to rebuild the world. But still, you read it, it's, it's, uh, it's quite daunting. So the world had reached its lowest point, And then it needed to be purified and rebuilt. Avram Avinu, essentially, to put it in simple language, gives hope to the human race. So though Noyach is Sadik, he's the one that preserved it, but Avram began to not just preserve the world, not just save it, but to begin to bring light again into the world. It says when Avram came, began to bring light. It was a pagan world. Avram Avinu, through his own journeys and his own search, discovered God and pioneered single-handedly with his wife Sarah, pioneered a new path for the human race, a path of Stoko Mishpat, Lasis Doko Mishpat, virtue and justice. Instead of a world focused on self-worship, on self-interest, that we are here to serve a higher purpose. And he was all alone. There was no institutions, there were no synagogues, there was no there was Avramavir and Sarah. And he went around spreading that message. It's a lesson for all of time. Because in all our times, we all have dark moments. There can be darkness, physical oppression, affliction, poverty. There could also be spiritual darkness, where you could be prosperous and have no direction. Many people talk about our times in that way. The values, what do we stand for? What's our mission in life? So we all are charged to be an Avram Avinu, an Abraham, that brings light to the world. In the words of the Medrash, that after Adam and Eve, who were placed in the garden to do exactly that, to serve and protect, and to turn the entire world into a garden, so after their fall, which means after they, their dissonance and their disconnect, the divine which was so present in existence, came concealed. And then the generations subsequent to that, all the way up to the flood, the concealment only intensified. And Avram Avinu reversed the process. So each in our own lives, whether it's in our own homes, in our own communities, in our world, or even within ourselves, have both those stages in our lives. We have a stage where we can be in the dark, where we can be disconnected. And there's a stage, the Avram stage, so the end of Noyach becomes Lebedic. It's more uplifting. And especially as we go into this week's chapter, which is today, the first day of Parshas Lech Lecha. So it's also a transition from the month of Tishrei, holiday season, into a world where you don't have any holidays, where on its own can be seem dark, but we're given this hope and this strength, the strength of 
the Avram within each one of us. Which connects it also to Zion Cheshvan. So let's talk a few minutes about Zion Cheshvan, 7th of Cheshvan. So for many, the 7th of Cheshvan, unless you learn about it, not something that seems practical. The time of the Beis HaMikdash were told that even though they prayed for the rains, they didn't start praying in Israel for rain till 7th of Cheshvan, because by then, all the Jews that had come, Aliyah Laregel, to the second temple that would come for the pilgrimage, the annual pilgrimage on Sukkot, Lires, Keshem Shebal Lires, Kagbal Lirois, the mitzvah Yiroel Akim Betzian, was a mitzvah to come to Jerusalem and celebrate there. So by the 7th of Cheshman, even the last Jew arrived at the Euphrates River in Har Pros, in Babylon. And since they didn't want to cause any Jew discomfort, so they didn't pray for the actual rain, didn't begin till after Zion Cheshman. Not to encumber or make it difficult for anyone who's traveling back home. So people arrived obviously earlier, those that were closer to Israel. But the last ones, Zion Cheshvan. The Rebbe made this into a whole, like everything in the Torah. So even though you could say it's only a thing that was relevant to the time of the Beis Amigdash, when they would travel to Israel, but the spiritual side of it always remains, till this day. And indeed, when you begin actually saying the prayer, what does it ultimately emphasize? The extent we go for the comfort of another person. Even though rain is a blessing, especially in the days when agriculture was the primary source of all, well, it was till today it is, but today it's so abundant. But agriculture was the way that people sustained themselves. A drought, a famine could be a story of life and death, God forbid. So though rain is a blessing, the blessings of rain, and that's why we pray for the rains, especially in that region, and yet, because it can make one person uncomfortable, the extent of Avis Yisrael, to care about every person who's traveling, even though you're home and you're comfortable, but someone else may be uncomfortable. One of the lessons. And this, again, in a world like ours, where often people call dog eats dog, survival of the fittest, a dark world, a world that can be, have crime and corruption, comes Avram Avinu and teaches what? Chesed, kindness. So Zayi Cheshvan is always in the week of Pashalach Lecha, or close to it. Because it's essentially that leaven of, of chesed to all, even to strangers, as, Av, as Avram Avinu and Sarah epitomized. So the lesson is very clear. As we enter into the world, meaning the world of our regular routines, if there's such a thing called regular routines, as we enter into that world, we come armed, as we discussed last week, with the resources, the rich resources of the holiday season, Chidosh HaShvi, Muzba. Shvi is number seven, seventh month, counting from the month of Nisan being the first month. But Shvi also means Muzba, sated, saturated, with all the different resources from the holiday season. But now comes the real challenge. Each one in our own path. Will we introduce light? or will we be focused on ourselves? Now, it's not a contradiction, obviously. A person, you have to take care of yourself. That's not what we mean. It means completely focused on self. To know that we're sent to this world to bring light and warmth and kindness and love to every person we meet. And that's how we bring godliness into this world. So this is the overall lesson, which can be obvious, but always needs to be stated again and again. I believe Yitzhak Badichev once in Badichev made an announcement one, one middle of a Tuesday, a regular routine Tuesday. He said he wants everyone to come to shul a certain time. Men, women, children. So everyone thought, okay, there must be some decree or something happened. So everybody gathered into the big shul. Yitzhak Badichev waited till everyone arrived. He went up on the bimah, he banged on the bimah, the big platform, and said, he wants everyone to know that there's a Rebbeinu Shalala. He wants everyone to know there's a God in this world. And that was that. And then they went back to their way. Or they didn't know there was a God. But sometimes it can remain in your head, or it can remain abstract. The point is to live with it. So as much as we're reminded, we need to be reminded again, 
because in the language of Kabbalah Chassidus, we live in a world of concealment. Tzimtzum Arishin, God did a very good job concealing his presence. And Aritza person who wants to make a mistake will make him make a mistake. And therefore, we constantly need the reminder of an Avram Avinu. So even though we read it last year, and we know the story, and we read it many times in different places, in Davening we repeat the story of the Akedah, and different things, we talk about Alekei Avram, Alekei Yitzchok, Alekei Yaakov, and yet, we constantly need to be reminded that this is a palpable, palatable, and tangible reality in our lives. And we have a mission. We have a divine mission to fulfill. And above all, we're reminded as we read these chapters coming from the month of Tishri into the month of Cheshvan. Okay. So there's some chesedus applied to Zion Cheshvan and to Lech uh, in general. Let's read two questions among many that come in, and I'm trying to keep up. So here's a good opportunity, please. Go to chesidusapplied.com. You have a forum where you can submit any question anonymously, confidentially. And uh, nothing is taboo. The policy, the principle, one of the, the trademarks of this program is every question is acceptable. So don't hesitate to use this opportunity. We've been doing this now for over nine years. We're already in the ninth year. In episode 422, week after week, every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Never thought it would be extending so long, but it's really due to, clearly something has resonated, due to your questions, due to the resonance of the program. And we continue on. I'm always amazed to hear more questions, but you know, that's the human condition. We're living day after day every day. We have our challenges, we have our issues, we have our confusions, we have our questions. So I feel honored to be part of this uh, journey with you. You can also find many resources at chassidusapply.com, including previous, the previous programs archived, as well as the essay contests of the previous years, uh, creative contest of people applying chassidus to real life. So with that, let's go to a few questions in connection to Lechocha. So one of the things we read in the Pasha is the story of Malki Tzedek. And the Torah criticizes him for blessing Avram before blessing God. So what did the Malki Tzedek do wrong by blessing Avram before blessing God? Is Hashem so petty and arrogant? Okay, I guess people take literally what I say, you can write whatever you like and I'm going to read it. So even though it's some disrespectful language, but this is how someone's writing, that is, is Hashem so, I'll use the right word, disturbed or bothered that, it gets, that he gets blessed, that gets blessed second, he gets angry and takes revenge. If a friend calls us and says their relative is not well and in the hospital, are we allowed to say we hope they feel better or are we supposed to, to bless Hashem first and then the sick person so Hashem doesn't get jealous and angry and start throwing lightning bolts? Seriously, Malkit Sadiq was a holy man who was the dean of, Yesh- of, of the yeshiva of Shem and Eber. He knew that Hashem created the world and that Avram epitomized and expressed Hashem's quality of chesed. So by blessing Avram, he was essentially blessing Hashem who created Avram. If my son did well on a test in yeshiva and his teacher said, blessed is your son and blessed are you for being a good father, I would be very happy and proud. I wouldn't be upset that the teacher had said, how dare you bless my son first and me second unless I was a self-righteous, arrogant person. I think Hashem needs to apologize to Malki Tzedek. Well, I guess you're entitled to your opinion, but the Torah has its way of presenting things. And what is, um, and I'm going to answer the question, and I respect every question, but some questions come from not knowing something, some questions come from contradictions, and some questions come from a basic lack of understanding the axioms of Torah. Let's remember, the Torah is not a storybook. The Zohar is very strong about saying anyone, anyone who calls it a storybook, meaning a book. I'm not talking about fairy tales. I'm talking about stories, just telling the stories that happened with Malkit Tzedek, with Avram, with Noyach, and so on. The Torah is a raisiv It's one with God. It's God's mind put on paper, paper that we can, we, we can tangibly read. 
Istakol baraisa or bara alma, it says. That's why it says, Vayemir alakim yeheir, vayheir. What's the redundant? The Torah is always so concise. Because God looked into the blueprint that he had created before he created the world, like an architect, the Medr says. He looked at the, archite- at the blueprint. And based on that, Vayemir alakim, he read and said, says yeheir, he created er. Why did God need that? Because the Torah gives us an interface where you have the plan that God wants of this world and documented. From Hashem's point of view, he can do it any way he wants, but he wanted us to understand his plan. And he wanted us to be partners with him in realizing and fulfilling that plan. So every word in Torah, every letter, in Torah's emes, the true Torah, and Torah's chesed, and kind Torah, is part of that blueprint. This is a critical axiom. This is the statement the Rebbe made more often than any other in his Fabrenians. Teda Meloshen Hira. The Teda comes from the word directive, instruction. It's an instruction manual. If you want, life's operator's manual. So every detail, even though it may seem just like a technical thing about genealogy or our heritage or whatever it may be, is all part of this blueprint. And that's why there are parts in the Teda we almost don't know anything about Avram from the written Torah till he's 75. On the other hand, when you talk about from Sefer Shmois till the end, four books are dedicated to 40 years. We're talking about after the Jews leave Egypt. So almost 2,000 years of the first book of Genesis of Breshis covers in one book, four books. So you see from that that it's not a history book. And it's not just telling us consistently the chapters on Yaakov are far many more chapters than on, uh, on Yitzchak and on Avram, who lived longer than Yaakov. Because the key thing in the written Torah, and then the oral Torah elaborates on it, Torah is the lessons to our lives. So the question has to be asked about Malki Tzedek is not just telling us what God is thinking. Why is it being told to us? And why now? And the answer, in a way I alluded to earlier, but let's spell it out. Remember, this was a period of time that were coming right after the Mabel. That though Adma Rishon was Yitzir Kap of Shalkaj Baruch created by God himself, God formed Adam, not no parents. Adam Achava created by Hashem. And yet, despite being created in the divine image and hearing what God wants of them, they were able to wander off. And then things just decelerated till we have the Mabel. And now the world is being rebuilt. So Avram Avinu plays, of course, a critical role, as we said. He brings light into a dark world and commits his life and his life of his family. The Manashi Tzavu as Bonov as Beisei Achav Lasis Dokom Mishpat. As we'll read in next week's chapter. And he begins, he pioneers and paves a new way. But not just as an individual. That would become the basis of the Jewish nation. Yitzchak would continue, Yaakov continued, then the tribes, and here we are today, thousands of years later. Not just the Jewish people, but how we've affected the entire world. So therefore, the lessons, in the, especially in these early chapters, are teaching us fundamental principles that will be necessary to know then and always. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with praising Avram Avinu for being a kind person. And being an agent of God, it's in a sense praising God. But even on a subtle level, the Torah wants to make sure that always know it's not just the human being. At the end of the day, Avram is a Merkava, and he's an agent, as I said, of Hashem's. So the Torah is telling us, because you can ask the question, let's say Malkit Tzedek praised, and, and he was wrong for doing so. He had to praise God first. Why do we need to know about it? What's the Torah to us? We need to know that Malkit Tzedek did something wrong. Because it's teaching us that you can be at Tzedek, and you can be a great teacher. But sometimes we all have an element of self. We sometimes can focus on the channel and forget that it's a, it's a sinner. It's only a channel. A gazim biyada chetzev. Like an axe in the hand of a woodchopper. Essentially, that was where the beginning of Aveda Zara began. Now I'm, I'm suggesting that's what Malkin said that he did, God forbid. What did it begin with? The Rambam explains in the beginning of the laws of idolatry, didn't begin someone decided, oh, you know what, I'm going to worship an idol. They all believed a new God exists, but God was invisible. So they looked for God's so-called handiwork, us, stars in heaven. 
These are God's messengers. They were still associating with God. But now they started relating to, I can relate to a star. But a star is still in heaven. So I'll build a shrine down below that corresponds to that star. And slowly, slowly began to replace. It began as being channels and agents of God. But once you start worshipping the agent, and then you bring in a little corrupt forces and selfish interests, idolatry was born. So it's critical, especially in the beginning of this journey, to emphasize that as great as Avram is, keep, keep remembering. It's not God being petty. It's just like saying, God says, look, second of the Ten Commandments, don't have idols. Was God jealous of, of a piece of wood or stone or the sun or the moon that someone's worshiping? You want to be foolish. Be foolish. We're told. Because of the fools, God's going to destroy his world. In a different context, but the idea. And the answer is no. It's, it undermines our very essence when we start worshiping ourselves or things we identify with. We have to always know these are forces that are dedicated to God. So subtly, Malki Tzedek, by first praising and bless, blessing Avram, was not, did not prioritize properly. You gave any examples. That's beautiful. Yes, to, to bless the person who's that. But when you come to a house, and let's say um, somebody brought a bottle of wine to the house, or one of the guests, and you're also a guest. So before you say thank you to the person who brought the bottle of wine, you say thank you to the host. So it's the wine belongs to the owner, but you say thank you to the waiter. But you have to remember who the owner is. And that's one of the lessons we learned from Malkit Satik. Okay. <clears throat> Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I very much enjoy your weekly broadcast. Perhaps you can answer a question that has been bothering me. I've gotten answers, but somehow they didn't seem clear enough to me. I learned last week, well, I learned, about how the covenant of Matan was with the souls of all Jews, of all generations, whereas the bris of Avram Avinu was connected with the physical body. On the other hand, I remember learning in the past that from the Oves, patriarchs, we inherited the Jewish neshama, whereas the aspect of atabachatonu, of the physical body, the God, the new, atuchatonu kolamim. The you chose us is the physical body that happened that which happened at Mount Tera. Although I understand the idea of the bris and the physical flesh, yet I feel the various concepts have gotten mixed up in my mind. Could you please help me straighten it out? Very good. So there's actually a sikh in Chelik Yud, which um, can help understand some of this, and I'll just sum it up. There he asked the question, the Pirush Mishnayis and Chulin, the Rambam says, that we don't do the bris, the mitzvah of bris, because Avram Avinu was commanded to do so in this week's chapter. But we do it because the mitzvah was given Amat and Teva. But the same say, we say, Kishem, Shenichnas Avram Avinu bris, just as Avram Avinu went into bris, so do we. We say it every bris mill. So which one is it? And the answer is there are two different things here. Matan Teda formalized in a very real way God's relationship with us. It was the marriage between God and the people. And that's why the bit like Zeda that very often is brought in many Sikhs, that before Matan Teda there was a certain dissonance, a certain schism between matter and spirit, between Alyenim and Tachtenim. And Matan Teda fuse the two together, and from there on, we have the power now to transform matter to spirit, meaning that before Matan Teda, all the mitzvahs that the Ovis did were all beruchnis, were spiritual, except one, the bris, bris bepsarchem. That was commanded to them. Everything else they initiated on their own. They were not commanded to do. Matan Teda changed that, but that's the order. First Avram, and then his successors, his children, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and the generations that followed embraced it first from the bottom up, so to speak. Hashem responded with the bris and other responses, but primarily the bris. After generations of so-called, we'll call it the education of the people, then they were ready. And it is compared before Matan like a chinuch, Matan compared to Bar Mitzvah, to a chasana, but also to a Bar Mitzvah, then it was formalized. 
So on one hand, when did the Gashmizdika connection really happen by Matan Teira? Before that, it was more of a spiritual connection. But remember, we also carry the genes and DNA of Avram Yisrael Kviyankiv. So whatever they did, Maisa of a similar bonim also affects us. That's why we say by a bris. That that's why a bris is primarily because of Matan Teira, because you wanted to really give have that invoke the power to transform the material. But we also want the strength that comes from our parents. So let's say your parents, even though they may not have been commanded to do so, but you still learn from them how to do it. Like education, chinuch. Before Bar Mitzvah, you're not mechuyiv, you're not responsible. But that doesn't mean we don't train you and don't educate you to do whatever it is that we have to do in the tale. That's a general distinction. And yet, because we need one thing, at least, the Hashem wanted to show that, you know, we also have a physical connection. So even before Matan Teir, you have the bris. Bris Ibn And that reconciles the different places that you'll find. So on one hand, there's the physical. The main physical happens by Matan Teir, but there is something of it before by the bris. On the other hand, we also want to have the Ruchanistic energy and strengths. That's why we invoke Alekei Avram, Alekei Yitzchak, Alekei Yaakov. Being that the last weeks I was doing a lot of follow-up on Tishrei, and I still have more to do on that, I just want to cover as much ground as I can. So I really didn't have a chance last week to cover Pasha Bereshis and Pasha Neach. So I wanted just to, to be mashlim, being that it's uh, before Zayin Cheshbon still, so we're still in the, in the wake, in the spirit of Tishrei. That's what it says in the Shulchan Aruch when he says Zayin Cheshbon. He says that they still had, uh, the spirit of the holidays was still with them until they actually got home. It's like when you're traveling back after the holidays, you still have the feeling of the holiday season, even though you, it's already after the Yom Tevi. So with that in mind, let's do a little follow-up and a little completion. I also learned from the best that Rebbe would do this often by Fabrengans. He said it was not enough time the previous Fabrengan. So we will complement, we'll complete it now. I can't say I complete it completely, but as much as possible. So I'd like to do something on Ambrashis, on Noyach. Then there were a lot of questions about prayers throughout the holiday season, and it's also relevant now. And a few timely things. Let's see how far we can get. And I have plenty of follow-up. Oh, boy, okay. Anyway, I say, oh, boy, I mean it in a good way, an uplifting way. It's always better to have more than less. It's all Teda, it's all Chassidus. But I also like to feel... And I'm answering all the questions. I feel bad that sometimes people send them questions. They work hard on it. They something that are bothering them. Sometimes I hear a question that's literally coming from a heart-wrenching place and you feel you want to immediately address it. I try to do that at times. But you have to also balance it with the different questions that come in. So it's not an easy process. But I do want you to know that I read all the questions. And, and, and especially the ones that are very personal, I try to prioritize. But I have to still find balance because there are many other questions that come in. So I do apologize and do want to clarify it just for those that just should know that I'm not, I'm not being ignored, God forbid. So let's deal with the Bereshit's question, or a few of them, let's say. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, we are taught in Chassidus that the name Alekim represents concealment. Therefore, is it possible to interpret Bereshit's bar Alekim as the beginning created a concealment? Now, was Bereshit's the beginning Bara Elikim created a concealment, as if to say, from the beginning, our existence is only possible due to a concealment of Hashem's infinity. That's interesting. It's a combination of two uh, issues. I've never heard it quite put that way, but it's an interesting thing to ponder upon. Because on one hand, we know when Talmud Melech, the Greek king, insisted that the Jews translate the Torah into Greek, which was something they didn't want to do because of all the obvious reasons, distortions, abuse, and so on. But they ended up doing it, and he put the Chachomim in different rooms because he didn't want, he wanted to see if anyone changes anything, he would compare it to the other translations. And they all changed a few things. One of them was instead of writing in the translation, Bereshis bought Elikim, which couldn't be read, that Bereshis created Elikim, created God, even though Bereshis means the beginning. So they changed it to Elikim that God created the beginning. On the other hand, 
And what does it really mean in Hebrew? It doesn't mean God gracious bodilakim. It means in the be- in the beginning God created. Rashi talks about it a bit, other commentaries. But the truth is, it is God created the beginning. But you could also say, as you're interpreting, which as I said, I haven't seen that Mephedish. Maybe someone says it, maybe it's brought in Chsidis. And if yes, please point it out to me if anybody's aware of it. You could see, you could say that he did create the world with Midas Adin, as Rashi brings, and we know. That Ebishtah wanted to create the world with Midas Adin, but then he saw it won't be Meskayim, so he also mixed into Midas Arachim. But Alekim is the din on Simpson. Bereshit is Bar Alekim. That's why the name Alekim is used. So you could say in the beginning God created the concept of a Simpson and Din. So there Alekim would refer to Midas Hadin. So technically you could interpret it that way. But definitely the use of name Alekim was for sure a fundamental principle because that explains how the world was created to be in, have independent consciousness. If there was no tzimtzum, in the words of the Arizal, the Eirein Sof, the divine consciousness that encompassed seamlessly all of reality would not leave room for anything else. So, in principle, yes. My answer is yes. Okay. This goes back to what we spoke about earlier, that God created the world with concealment. And then he wanted, that we should bring light into it. And Avraham Avinu, in the generational structure, like it says in Pirkeiovis, the first ten generations defied God. That was through, the, the, from Breshis to, um, talking about from Adam to Noyach. Then from Noyach to Avram, was another ten generations, and Avram began to change everything by bringing light into the world. Another question. What is the connection between the ten spheres and the Asadim Amoris that Hashem used to create the world? So, Asadim Amoris Nivrayelo. And we see, Vayemer Alekim Yehir, Vayemer Alekim Yehir So, there are ten utterances or ten statements, you can say, Amoris. The Mishnah already points out when you count, you only count nine. Where's the tenth? So, it says, Bereshis Nami Maimeru. Bereshis Bar Alekim is also a Maim, a more all encompassing one. But 10 jumps out immediately. Why 10? Why not 11? So it corresponds to the 10, 10 commandments. Sarasadib is also 10. And it all originates in the 10 spheres. The answer is absolutely yes. The Pardis of the Ramak, he explains it relatively at length. Chassidus cites it. That everything begins with the Esra spheres. As we learn, we read in Tukunizayat, or in general. Because the 10 spheres are the way God expresses his attributes. He move on, the Abish says, higher than all midas. Love in inner midas iu klal. He's beyond any definitions and any attributes, but he chose to manifest in them. Like the Alter Rebbe brings in the Haggah and Perik Beis in Tanya and other places, several times in Tanya, that the Ramak, and especially, and that, including the Arizal, in Atzilus, that's where, who Hamadav, who Yideh, who Yidur, that God is one with his attributes. Higher than that, like the Maral says, God is beyond attributes. So the attributes, even as Chassidus explains, which are rooted all the way before the Tzimtzum, what's called the Eses Sviris Agnuzis. So there are different opinions where they're exactly located. But according to Chassidus, they're all the way originate, all the way in God envisioning existence. Envisioning it, how you envision existence. Like an artist envisions his art, there's no art yet. But he's envisioning Chachma, Bina, Das, etc., the ten hidden spheres. From that will evolve the ten revealed spheres, all the way in Natsilis, where you have a balanced structure, interconnectivity, and interconnected structure is Kaulus from Chachma through Malchus. And, and then that continues to evolve, that from there, from Chachma would come Breshis, which is like Resh, Chachma, and then the rest of this, and the ten Asadam Amoris, all correspond to the ten spheres, as explained in the Pardis and other places. The Asar Sadibris is some like an, an interface, you can say, because the Asar Sadibris is Teda. So Asar Sadibris can be higher than the spheres because it's Teda, or they are like the spheres, but definitely higher than Asar Mamoris, which is about the creation of the world. And that's why everything structured in number 10 as a complete number. Next question Are there Mamorim that explain the Rakia? So the second day, it says Yehid Rakia, there should be a firmament. And God separated between the higher waters and the lower waters. Before that, the world was completely covered in water. 
Why was it necessary and what practical lessons do we take from it? Are you familiar with the Medrash and Sefer Yuxin with Rabbi Meir and the non-Jew asking how the waters can be suspended from above? See Yalkut Ma'amleyas. Yes, several Medrashim. So let's start begin. My modern that explained the Rekia, yeah, you'll find firstly in Eira Teira from the Samach Tzedek, I believe also from, it could be from the Mitla Rebbe, also talks about it. But a good place to begin by looking is Sefer Lekutim Dach Samach Tzedek. It's an encyclopedia that gathers everything from the Samach Tzedek, which really includes all of Chassidus. At the end of each entry there is are, are an index from other Maimorim. So there you can find a lot of material on Rekia that Samach Tzedek, in his classic way, cites Kabbalistic sources, Midrashic sources, commentaries, and puts it all together into a, into a picture. Rikia is explained in many different Maimorim, in Ayim Beis, for example, in Volume 2, in Volume 2 of the earlier edition. There's a whole discussion of Rikia as being part of the Parsois. So when the Abishta created in Day 2, what did he create in Day 2? The concept of 2. Day 1 was Oyer Chesed. Day 2 is Gvura. Gvura separates. Separation between the higher and the lower. Because God wanted a world of diversity, so Day 1... That's why it says Yem Echad, not Yem Rishon, because this medrash, the Medrash says, because that's when what dominated, what filled existence was the oneness of God. But God wants a world of diversity. Diversity, not divisiveness, but diversity. That's why in the second day you don't see, it says Kitoiv, because diversity can lead to divisiveness. It's the day when Machlekes was created, not actual Machlekes, the potential. As soon as you have an upper and a lower, is the potential for divisiveness. With the goal of coming to day three, which is a double good, make shalom. Machriya b'neim, kosev ashlishi. Number three, reconciles and creates harmony within diversity. So you see that really day two was also for the good. But what's the point of the rakia? Essentially separation. Creating distinction, havdalah, vayavdel. And that's where the word havdalah comes with God. God separated Shabbos and the six days of the week. So separation is vital in a world like ours where there's structure, just like the separation that allows existence to be. You have a windpipe, you have a food pipe, you have land, you have water, you have sky, you have earth. And then our job is to find and create the harmony within it all. That's the essential principle. And Ayim Beis, as I mentioned, explains the parsa, the parsois, which are the partitions. The first of them in the Torah you'll find is Rekia. And there are many different partitions throughout Holy Shtalshus, as the Rebbe Rashab explains at length. Because it's necessary not just to have different departments. In different departments, you also need to have separations, barriers, boundaries. Part of any existing entity is also partitions. So just as it's important that things work together, they also have to have, each one has to have their boundaries. As we see in relationships and every area where a healthy interaction is always based on a, a, a certain connection, but also about healthy boundaries. That's the essential as, essence of the Rakia. The Medish you cite also is brought there, in the Maimonim of the Samach and other places, where you can see more details of what it means about the suspension and so on. Okay, that covers some questions on Bereshis. There are many more. I just took a selection to make sure I'm covering some of it. Noyach. What exactly happened during and after the flood? For Hashem to change his mind and change the rule and now allow the consumption of meat. So here again, Chesidus explains this. I believe also in Chelik Tazvav Lukutesichas in the Noyach Sicha, the Noyach Olechlech, yeah, the Noyach Sicha, I believe, talks about it there as well, bringing from the different Mamorim Chesidus. So let's just establish, let's just clarify. Adam and Chava were told do not have, do not consume meat, only vegetation. They were vegetarians essentially. Why? Because when you're in a pure state, to consume an animal, even on a physical level, requires more digestion more work, and in Birurim, which is the whole purpose of eating in the first place, as the Arizal explains, because we're elevating the sparks that fell from through the shattering of the containers, 
So eating is a form of birudim, of clarifying, of separating, of elevating and refining. So meat is harder to refine. So you can argue if that's the case, then after the marble, for sure they shouldn't eat meat. But the Rebbe explains a beautiful concept. On one hand, before the marble, they lived many years, many more years. After the marble, the limit was 120 years. So that would seem to suggest that before the marble, they were far more spiritual. But remember, their living many years was chesed. That's why it says, of Deiriz, the first 26 generations, it was like children. God gave them a gift. But you know, when you get a gift, on one hand, it can be a big gift, like a thousand, living a thousand years, 800 years, 900 years. But you can easily also get spoiled and not appreciate it. So after the mabal, everything turned around. Now I'm not giving you such big gifts. You're a little older now. We've seen what happens when you get gifts like that. You also can abuse it. Now you have to earn your way. But when you do, it's much more internal. So the internal Aveda really begins after the mabal. So though the mabal on one hand was, yes, it wiped away the corruption and the toxins that preceded the flood, but it also refined the world. That Now you can start working from the bottom up. So you don't have as many years, but what you do have is more premiums. And that's why now you have the power to go even into the world of meat, chai, not just demim and tzemeach, mineral and vegetable, but also the world of animal with proper aveda. That's why it says an amoritz asalechel basar. Amoritz is not supposed to eat meat because you need the right aveda to elevate. Shabbos if it's a mitzvah to eat meat. It's a harder aveda, but it's more premium because now you're transforming the world. So before Martin Taylor, you can say it was like you don't feed children difficult foods, hard, you give them softer foods. Same thing with Things were much more sensitive in that way, but it was not internalized as much. And that's one of the explanations for this. I should have read the second half of the question. I'll read it now. It seems counterintuitive. If Neich was commanded to take care of the animals and save them, and now he's being told you can now go ahead and kill them and eat them. Well, actually, it's good that I read it afterwards. It's not a contradiction. Because when we consume animals, the way a pitera, we're not coming to destroy animals. On the contrary, we're coming to elevate them. That's why we have to take great care. You can't just eat, just indulge. It's because God said, I'm giving you, you know, why did Hashem make it that way, that we have to consume another life form in order to survive? Says that is all because the sparks are deeper there. And we also are given charge with the mission to elevate the world. That's the only reason we're allowed to eat altogether. Not just animal, vegetable and mineral too. Only because we're elevating it. If you don't elevate it, you have no right to eat any of this. So it's not a contradiction. There came a point where taking care of the animals, even when today when we eat meat, doesn't mean you're supposed to be negligent and, and just kill an animal. Hunting is, a, is, is, not, is completely not the spirit of Tate. It may even be forbidden. Probably is forbidden. So you can say one second. Well, only under the conditions when you're elevating and refining. At the same time, we're charged to protect the, na- the environment and the natural world. Baltashch is not a result of an animal, even just treading on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on grass for no reason. As the, the Rebbe Rashab told the Friedrich Rebbe when he was a child and he was rubbing a, piece, a, a leaf from a tree, he said, how, how are you destroying a leaf from its trajectory in its life for no reason? Everything that God creates has sanctity to it, including mineral, vegetable, and, 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 you, and animal. So the protection is one thing, and then there's the elevation, and only when it's with the goal of elevating. Okay. Another question. If the whole idea of the flood was to eradicate evil and evil people from the world by selecting pious people like Noach and his family to be a new, the new progenitors of mankind, how is it possible that Noach's offspring could make such a mistake and build the Tower of Babel? Did they so quickly forget Hashem's kindness in saving them from the flood? How could such ingrates come from such a holy man as Noyach? Well, the, answer, the short answer is yes, it can. It's exactly what happens in life. Tell me. I hope nobody 
it personally experiences this, but unfortunately we all do. We all have great blessings and gifts, and then we do take it for granted. The story of the Tower of Babel, like I said before, everything is to tell us that yes, you could have a world that was corrupt and a world that was destroyed and everyone knew it. And Noyach and his children, of course, they shared the story how they were saved. And yet, a little time passes and you forget. I've seen this so many times and I include myself. We take things for granted. And when we do, we low down, lower our guards, we become more apathetic. And we can even become more arrogant. When a person is successful, sometimes much greater test than when you're not. Because success tends to create a certain uh, sense of entitlement, comfort zone. Even look what I've achieved. Certain pride. That's why I spoke before about Malkit Tzedek. That's why the Torah is so precise, so careful. Make sure you remember, don't forget God in all of this. Because it's so easy to forget once you're blessed. Same thing here. And that indeed was the problem with the Tower of Babel. It was about self. They actually felt, you know, we are God-like ourselves. Which brings to the next question. Why was it innovated to build the Tower of Babel? There's no one in the Torah or in the seven odd mitzvahs that says thou shalt not construct large skyscrapers. Is there something wrong with large skyscrapers that... Then, then did we New Yorkers do an Avera, a sin, by building the Twin Towers and Empire State Building? Another person writes it this way. What did the people building the Tower of Bubble do wrong? It was right after a devastating flood. It makes sense they were afraid in case another flood would happen, that they should have a tall building they can go to, go up and to be safe from the water. So what was the problem? The problem was not building a skyscraper. The problem was Kechivi Eitzim Yadi that we are gods, and we're going to confront God, and we're going to become gods, and we're going to reach up to heaven. When the Titanic sank, the Rebbe Rashab, that's what they say, said, that was a blow to the there's nothing wrong with building a great ship, or great, but when you think it's me, self-worship, the whole movement of Atlas Shrugged, the Fountainhead, Ayn Rand, Self-creation, I'm, I am a God. Now that doesn't mean that we should belittle ourselves or berate ourselves. We can be a, a doormat, but we have to always remember both combinations. That yes, we have strengths and we were given strengths, but they're given from a greater place. Why was Moshe the humblest man on earth? Not because he didn't know his strengths. That's a shuffle. That's someone who is self-delusional, low self-esteem. It's because he said, the strengths I was given and he knew them well, were given to me by God, by Hashem. When you forget that second half, you just remember your strengths, that's where problems begin. So it wasn't the building of a tower of bubble that was the problem. It was why they were building it and what they thought about themselves. And what do you see? That you see the answer. The answer was that God didn't take away human beings' power to build or else we wouldn't be able to build skyscrapers. He confused their language because he didn't want them to be united in this conspiracy. Go build skyscrapers, but not to join together in a battle against God. Many of those that have built great things came to, you know, one second, I'm just like God. I can, I'm God-like. Look at all those uh, demagogues throughout history. They had to make themselves like God. That is the problem. So no, constructing big things on the contrary, God gave us those resources by all means. Look what we've done to this world. We've transformed it. And we can be proud of it. But the pride has to also come with a humility. It was given to you. That's the, that famous joke, or not so famous, where a scientist says to God, we don't need you anymore. Whatever you do, I can do. God says, show me. So the, the scientist gathers some earth and puts it in a laboratory. He says to God, I'm going to show you that I can make things grow out of the earth without your help. So God says, yes, but excuse me, sir. Before you begin, why don't you use your own earth? No, but you're taking the earth that God created and we're replicating it. A camera, great invention, but it's replicating a human eye which was created by God. An airplane, another great invention, but it's replicating a bird created by God. So we get punch, we've gotten much credit of developing the resources of this world. But remember, technology, whether it's nuclear energy or atomic energy or subatomic energy or quantum or electricity, 
are all forces that were here embedded in existence. We did not create electricity. We learned how to generate it. We learned how to access it. Just like we dig in the, under the ground and we find uh, natural gas or oil or other uh, fuels. So it's important to keep in mind, like a good student knows, as much as they innovate that I received from my, parent, my, my, from my, from my teacher. And when you lose that humility, that's when things can go really awry. And we see, we've seen what happened to scientists and geniuses when they forgot about God, when they thought they were God, but they started playing God, how bad and how destructive they could become. Are we able to, and this is I think one final question, are we able to quell our fears about global warming causing oceans to rise and destroy the earth by remembering Hashem's covenant with Noach, which Hashem showed Noach a rainbow as proof that Hashem will never destroy the earth again? Interesting question. Well, the covenant for short tells us that God will not destroy the earth, meaning he will not bring another flood and destroy the earth. That's what the Keshes, the rainbow, shows. The question is, really is, can we, human beings, destroy the earth? Or does the covenant also include that we won't be? Now remember, why did God bring the marble in the first place? Because human beings destroyed themselves. It was a cause and effect. So by extension, you could say also the rainbow is also the same idea. I will never let you, human beings, destroy yourself to the point that, that the world will be destroyed. So you could say, yes, a certain element of the world is preserved by that covenant. But there's another aspect which is important to remember. The human being was charged with protecting this world. That's part of our responsibility. And therefore, you'll see, I remember when I was in high school, they were telling us, this was 1973, 74, 72, they were telling us, that by 1990, there will be no more food in the world for everybody. There will no more oil, resources, other resources. And that didn't end up ending up that way. First of all, deeper, more resources were found. Secondly, human beings began to preserve more. Remember, cars then used to, used to then guzzle, uh, I don't know, five, five, five miles a gallon or 10 miles a gallon. Now it's much more. Besides the finding of more resources. So there's a great God that created the world and made sure that the world will be able to sustain, I don't say itself, but have the resources to continue. Can, we are charged, not not to destroy, not to scrounge our resources. It's all parts of God's gift to us. But there's always that immune system that God put into place that there's no doubt that no matter what we do, what we have to do, the world will do what it has to do because it's God's world and he has embedded within it everything we need to live. And look, we continue to live and we could eliminate famine. Today it's an absolutely doable thing, even though the population has doubled from the 70s. It's now 8 billion people plus in this world. So it's how we use the resources and the, and the, and the technologies that we've been creating to innovate, which all again comes from the blessings of God. Okay. And as usual, time is run, running out. Time is running out. So what do we do now? I really wanted to cover so much more. Let me just then cover a few timely matters. And the prayer that I was going to address, I'll do another time. And this follow-up. Okay. Um, what are your thoughts on the Miami Boy Choir Miami Boys Choir going viral on social media in the past while. Do you think that this is validating to the youth who may now feel more comfortable with Jewish music now that the Goyesh Elam has deemed it worthy? It's a good question. Oh, let's first establish a few things. I pointed this out. Many times you have to know what is, according to the books, what the Torah says, the standards of Torah, Chassidus, and then have to be practical. That's not, God forbid, a contradiction. But the Torah, for example, says, and nevertheless, we also have an animal soul, and we know we have our challenges. We're not perfect human beings. But we need to know our standards. We discussed this in previous weeks in general about many, much Jewish music today. Does that go into the category of Torah music, meaning Torah, like music that was sung by the Levim and the Beis Amigdash, or the Nusach and Davening that goes back generations? or music composed by tzaddikim. So we know there are stages of music. There's a lot of Jewish music today that is technically Jewish, maybe using Hebrew words, 
but the tunes may not even come from Jewish sources. And yet, Jews are using it, and it makes people lebedic. There is an element of simcha at weddings, or in general for children or for adults. So you have to also know the, the, the level. That's the first thing I want to state. Like I said, the Rebbe Rashab says he doesn't like people who say pshat lachintanya. But if it adds in Yerushalayim, he doesn't mind. The same thing can be applied here. Much of the Jewish music scene, unless maybe something which is really inappropriate or using songs it shouldn't be using, which I'm not here to decide or judge, that let every community, every individual go to their rav, their mashpia. But much music that does lift up spirits and is used and people sing it, and especially it's using teira, psukim, and so on, has an element of uh, at least l'shem shemayim, asachal l'shem shemayim, if it's indeed that. And in that sense, once we've established that may not be the holiest level of music as a tzaddik would compose a nigan, or as I said, a nigan from the Beis Amigdash's time, but it has an element of that l'shem shemayim, that Jews are singing it or Jews are using it, and it has a message that's very um, divine, so to speak, a message of hope, a message of inspiration, a message of living up to what God wants of us. So then in that sense, it would be no different than a good article, that someone writes an article, I've written articles, I've not gone that viral, and that would go viral and has a good message. Is the article necessarily the perfect article? Is it a pure, a pure pasuk from the Tater or Maimah Chazal? Not necessarily, but it's based on it. So in that sense, it's a Kiddush Hashem. It's a Kiddush Hashem simply because the message is getting out and it creates a Kiddush Hashem. The Jews have nice music. The Pasuk says that the, all the nations to the eyes of the people, the world sees there's Chochmah Bina by the Jewish people, including music. So, and then it can be used as an opportunity for others to also use those channels to bring a message of Torah, of mitzvahs, of goodness, of kindness, as far as validating it for our own, I mean, it, if it ends up doing so, that our own, our own young women, men and women are proud of this. So like I said, if it adds in their Yerushalayim and adds in their Ge'en Yankiv, their Jewish pride, great. There I'm a little being more careful because we should really be proud of it because of, of its own merit, Torah Mitzvahs. You don't need a song to go viral on social media to know the Torah is valuable. And if you want viral, Avram Avinu went viral. Good two-thirds of this world, if not more, see Avram as the first prophet, as the first visionary, as the first God's pioneer of monotheism. Christianity, Islam, which is, we're talking about the billions and billions of people, all see Avram Avinu as that. So Teda ultimately did penetrate the world. The Rambam says that it helped pave the world for Mashiach. Other, other religions. So there is a viral element to that as well. Is that a Kiddush Hashem for us? Absolutely. Despite that it may not be perfect, it may have its own mistakes and its own shortcomings. But there's always something you can see goodness in things. I'm not comparing that obviously to this, uh, that's not my comparison to Christianity, God forbid. This is a Jewish choir, Jewish Jews singing with psukim and so on. Jewish messages, Torah messages. So that would be my response to that. Are we allowed to vote for a candidate for governor who's Jewish but is married to a non-Jew and has Gentile children? Maybe it's not a good idea to vote for him because by him marrying a non-Jew, we see he doesn't make good choices and decisions. It's a complicated question being because we're not endorsing intermarriage here. Same, time, same way you go to a doctor who's a good doctor who may be intermarried. Or you have someone coming to, to a shul and maybe intermarried. It's part of the unfortunate collateral damage consequences of an assimilated world. So if the candidate is good for the cause, we would say, we vote for him because the cause is good. Is it better to vote for a Gentile whose cause is not good because he didn't intermarry? Or for a Jew who did, who, who's married to a Jew but does, his, his values are not aligned with Torah values? So... I would say in this case, though we, we, we have to separate the two, one thing does not necessarily reflect on the other. And if you have influence on him, hopefully you can maybe inspire him. I'm, not inspi- not, I'm talking about inspiring him as a Jew, 
And what he does, he does. In general, our attitude, we're not going around convincing people to, to divorce their non-Jewish wives. You try to inspire them with Yiddishkeit, you bring light, and light automatically does its work. And sometimes a spouse can convert, or other things that, uh, that change the status. But I think it's two separate things regarding voting for a candidate. There would be in the merits of the candidate, despite this position. And also being a Tinnik Shanishba, to say it reflects he doesn't make good choices, he may not have had, I mean, everyone has choice, but he may not have real choice, didn't know better. Not justifying it, I'm just saying it's not always a reflection of judgment call. It could be a reflection of knowledge and awareness and ignorance, Tinnik Shanishba. Okay. And I'll do one more question. Can someone with severe PTSD use a phone on Shabbos and Yantav? Dear Rabbi, a 20-year-old young person suffering at nights from severe post-trauma that can last for hours involves terror, shaking, and re-experiencing the trauma over and over again. This person experiences this uh, PTSD, which is post-traumatic syndrome disorder, alone, and a and person's family does not know about this. Family is not an option for help, unfortunately. If this person is not exhausted from nights on end, not being able to sleep, the person can sometimes pull themselves out of it with huge, huge effort. Many times a cell phone helps as a distraction to come out and calm down. Many times this person is endlessly grateful, grateful for this device that distracts from the horrors. We need clarification on the halachas for Shabbos and Yontif. Can this person use their phone? Can I provide any more information so to hear what the Torah has to say about this? Well, firstly, because this is a halacha question, as I always said, this is not a platform for halachic answers. We can talk about the hashkafa, the ideas, and I'll share a few words about it. But above all, talk to a competent rabbi that knows you or knows this person or knows the circumstances. They can answer. Because it could go into the area of health, nefesh, and danger. And as I said, every case by case. Overall, in spirit, if a person is in danger or even a doubt of danger, Shabbos, it's actually a mitzvah to, to, uh, to do something on Shabbos that would have been prohibited. Because that's how you sanctify Shabbos, by helping a life. The question is whether this applies to this situation or not, I don't know. If it would apply, the logic would be that the person needs to have to call someone for support or help, just like you'd call a doctor. It doesn't always mean a doctor has to be for medical, it could be mental, it could be emotional, it could be traumatic. These things are also important for the welfare of a human being. Whether to use a phone just to play games or to do something that will soothe the person, again, needs to be discussed with a rabbi and with a professional, because if a professional says, here's something you can do, and we have to also, also know what alternatives are there. There are many things you're allowed to do on Shabbos that don't have to be dependent on a phone that can also help a person get calm themselves down and get out of that type of post-traumatic or recreation of a traumatic experience. So... Above all, I want to say my heart goes out to this person and to anyone that experiences this. Teres Chaim and Teres Eloshon Chaim definitely has directives. And above all, life is the most important thing of all to God. And Shabbos and everything was given in order to preserve life, not the other way around. Except for three things, which is another discussion. But here we're talking about if it's life, that's the most important thing. And please know, if you want to reach out to me or to reach out to someone else, it's important to talk to someone this is a public forum, so it's not many things I would not address in a very personal way because it's very customized and confidential and sensitive. But know that there are people to speak to, and I appreciate you reaching out to me, and I hope this helps. If you need more information, just text, uh, write, write to me, write to us. If you want to leave an email address, which I believe you did, I will be happy to follow up further. Okay. So on a concluding note, let's conclude Mesayim B'tev always, being that we're entering, we've entered the month of Cheshvan, may we carry all the powerful energy of Tishrei into our lives. And this is the real crunch time, the real test. In this part of the world, this hemisphere, it also the beginning of the 
autumn turning into winter, winter months. Akriv, Scorpio is the, it's the sign of Cheshvan, which is interesting, which Scorpion is cold, has toxins in it, but we have the power of Lech Lecha, we have the power of Avram Avinu, to bring light and illuminate and warm the darkness, all levels of darkness of this world. And that's our mission. Each one of us. May we be blessed to do so in a healthy way, gesunte way, and the way that we transform our environments and prepare the world for the Gula Mitis Vashlema. May it be now without any further delay. This has been My Life Chassidah Supplied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Very gazuntavach and a good techedish and a good week and a good year. See you again next week. Thank you. This program is brought to you by My Life Chassidah Supplied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidahsupply.com slash donate.